Welcome to the weekly podcast from Spring of Life Church, located in the heart of downtown Portland. We hope you enjoy this message from God's Word. For more information, visit us at springoflifepdx.com. Once again, we're so glad you're here as we continue our message series called Shocking Jesus, where we're asking the question, if Jesus is real and we believe that he is, what would it be like not just to hear about him? What would it be like to actually meet him? And we're so fortunate that the Bible is the true life account of people who really met Jesus. And we're able to dig in and dive into the scripture to see what this experience would be like. And so if you have a copy of God's word, you can join me in John chapter 13 as we continue this series. And if you don't have a Bible, you're always welcome to grab one for free on the way in as our gift to you. There is no greater gift than the words of life. Well, it's uh, turning fall in Portland, so I hope that your walk to church today was beautiful. Um, But hopefully our experience together will be beautiful as well. Today, our message is a pretty simple title, as uh, we just call it simply, Jesus and the Feet. So everybody has a different feeling about feet, but most of us know the truth, that they are disgusting. Um, So my wife, Andrea, is among us today. She is what we would call in our family, the good parent. Um, She makes our daughter do, you know, crazy stuff like brush her teeth every day and not play in traffic. Um, So I'm kind of the youth pastor. I um, teach her the hilarity of bathroom humor It will be because of Andrea that Valentina is godly and because of me that she is weird. You're welcome, honey. Um, The other night I put Valentina down to bed because I do bedtime a lot of the time. And I tucked her in, said her prayers, and I left the room. And Andrea went in to like sneak a goodnight kiss too. And she came back in the bedroom where I was and she was like, did you know that Valentina had gum in her mouth? And I was like, what? She did? That is sin. Um, we were out to dinner this week, and Valentine was being a little bit whiny at the table. And so I kind of gave her, like, the stern face, like, you need to stop. And she didn't stop. So I just, like, sweep her up from the table, and um, I snuck her into the store next door and let her pick out a toy. <laughs> so uh, you might call that being a pushover, but I call it grace. There's the spiritual principle. Um, because here's what grace really is. It is nothing more and nothing less than undeserved goodness. And it was so clear that Valentine deserved a lot of things in that moment, but a toy was not one of them. Um, See, mercy is not getting the punishment that you deserve. And so oftentimes when we think of grace, we confuse it. We say, I've received the grace of God. And what we're saying is, because of him and his work on the cross, we have uh, avoided the consequences of sin and death. But that is mercy, and mercy is beautiful. I'm so grateful today for the mercy of God, that he and his kindness would spare us what we deserve. But grace is a step further. It is getting something so good and so undeserved. How do we reconcile all of this grace? You know what I learned from my daughter in that moment when she was crying at the table and then really happy when she got her toy? Is that kids... They don't have a problem accepting grace. They just receive it so freely, so wonderfully. But grown-ups, we tend to make it a little bit more complicated, don't we? Grown-ups, if we're not careful, careful, we start to practice spiritual capitalism. We think we should only get what we've worked for. And that's because we live in a world system that conditions us to believe that. 
I was doing just a bit of study in preparation for this message, and I began asking the question, why does it seem like it's so much easier to accept an insult than a compliment? John Acuff, he is an author, and he calls this the critic's math. He said, here's the formula for the critic's math, that one insult equals a thousand compliments. And in a devotion, he writes, he tells a story of a famous guy by the name of Larry David. Larry David is really rich. You don't need to feel sorry for Larry David today. He co-created Seinfeld. So every time that rerun hops on the TV, he gets a check. And uh, he also created another show called Curb Your Enthusiasm. And John Acuff tells a story about how Larry David was in New York, and he is a native New Yorker. He is a huge fan of the Yankees, and he was at a Yankees game right there in the ballpark. There's 50,000 fans, and they actually put up a picture of Larry David on the screen in honor of his visit to the game that day. And the crowd, like, erupts with all of these cheers, and Larry David just kind of listens. And after the game, he's out with a friend, and a guy drives by in in a taxi, and he leans out the window, and he goes, Hey, Larry! And Larry looks over and he goes, you stink. And his friend said all the way home, Larry just obsessed, not on the 50,000 people that gave a compliment, but on the one voice of insult. Why is that? I think there is this deep inward knowledge that ultimately we have fallen short of the glory of God. But if we're not careful, it's so much easier to picture a distant and angry God. And I think that's why so many people struggle with religion. I think that's why so many Christians even struggle with accessing the fullness of God. I've met so many people who they wouldn't say it out loud, but the way they live their life, the way they relate to God, they consider themselves to be second-class citizens of the kingdom of God. We talk to people uh, all the time about what they believe about Jesus. Yesterday, we took a small team out on the streets of Portland, and it was awesome. We got to talk to over a dozen people about their spiritual beliefs. And I got into a conversation with a lady by the name of Peggy, and um, we kind of did the spiritual survey, and it just kind of turned into a real conversation, as it so often does. And uh, one of the questions that we always ask people is, if you would want to know God, like, if God is real, would you want a relationship with him? This lady said she had a Catholic background, and she kind of grew up with religion as a part of her life. And normally when we ask that question, would you like to know God, even in America's least religious city, would you believe that 84% of people say yes? There's this yearning to know this God. But she was in the 16%. She actually said no. And I said, can I just ask you why? Uh, If God is real, why wouldn't you want to know him? And she said, because I think he's too big He knows too much, and I'm afraid. I'm afraid of knowing what he knows, and I'm afraid of being known by him. It's because she's believing a picture of God that the Bible is not painting. And today we're going to do some work to correct that. See, because she's believing a religion. Religion is what can you achieve. But grace says, what are you willing to receive? And this morning we're going to hear a shocking story. In John chapter 13, let me give you a bit of passage background. It's the night before the murder of God. I was just reading today in Acts. It says the author of life who was given up to death 
Death could not hold him. That's the moment that we are leading up to in this story. So what does God himself do the night before he gives his life to atone for us? He gathers with a group of his followers. In an upper room above a busy city, a room a lot like this one. Earlier in the week, they've entered into the city, and it's been the triumphal entry. People are going wild. If you remember last week, we told the story about Lazarus, about how Jesus is the resurrection, and Jesus is the life, and he called out to a grave where a man had been laying for days and said, Lazarus, come forth, and he did. People are still freaking out about this moment, and so they're celebrating God, and they think they've seen a miracle, and Jesus keeps proclaiming, I am the miracle the fact that god himself is walking among you that is the miracle so the 12 are meeting there together and they've gathered in an upper room several floors above the noisy city and jesus did something shocking i'm going to read some scripture and talk through it just like normal so let's take a look at verse one the bible says this now before the feast of the passover When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Let's just talk about that for a second, because Passover was such a significant time in the Jewish calendar. It's celebrating another dramatic story about how God's people were spared from death. They were in Egypt, if you remember, and the plagues were taking place, and it was the final plague And in order to be spared, a lamb had to be killed, and its blood was painted over the doorway. And the lamb's blood saved the lives of those inside the door. And so just to give you a bit of significance of the moment, they are celebrating a feast with Jesus of the Passover, which itself was pointing to the lamb, Jesus himself. The Bible says that he loved his own who were in the world. He was with this group of people, these 12 men. He chose them. He points out many times they didn't choose him. He chose them. Even though they questioned him and debated amongst themselves who was greater, they messed up. But the Bible points out yet again that he loved them. What does that mean for us? Let's look at verse 2. It says, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel wrapped around him. And we kind of know this story if you've grown up in church or been anywhere near church. It's become more than a story. It's become a metaphor let's put ourselves back in the narrative like if someone got their feet out in this room right now it'd be weird and it'd be weird if we watch someone else go over and start to clean them but culturally it was even bigger than this i remember one time going to a mall in thailand and i see these people sitting in the store window and they have their bare feet in a tank of water and these little fish are going around eating the gook off their feet it was weird (laughs) And this was a weird moment, but even weirder than that. Because in this day and age, foot washing was the servant's job. It was the job of the person that you were used to overlooking. Not someone who was going to take charge of the narrative. In order to really understand the story, you have to picture what it would be like to almost feel embarrassment 
before Jesus. As he knelt down in such a place of humility, even humiliation. Verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. I love Peter because speaking of feet, he's always putting his foot in his own mouth. That's a man I can relate to. But Peter was not just outspoken. I think in this moment he had the proper reaction to what was happening. Think back to some of the things that Peter had seen regarding Jesus. He'd seen a dead person raised to life. He'd seen the storms obeying Jesus. Peter was a man that had stepped out of a physical boat onto physical water and physically walked on water with Jesus. He had seen thousands fed and thousands healed. And more than that, Peter just loved this man. He had great affection for Jesus. He looked up to him. He loved to be around him. But he'd also seen something else that is so important to realize. Something that took place in Matthew chapter 17. Sometimes it's an overlooked story, but we can't overlook it today. It was a moment called the transfiguration of Jesus. And let me give you the basics, and maybe you can read more about it later. Three men go on a mountain with Jesus. Peter, James, and John, the author of the book we've been studying. This was a defining moment in Peter's life. Because on the top of this mountain, the Bible says the heavens opened. And Jesus radiated with the very glory of God. The Bible describes this moment as seeing Jesus shining like the sun. And a voice from heaven says, this is my son. It was an incredible, outstanding, epic moment. And after this moment, I don't think that, G- that Peter could ever see Jesus the same way again. It's like when you're watching Superman, and you're just watching Clark Kent, and then finally you see Superman, you can't go back to just seeing Clark Kent anymore. There was no unseeing who Jesus really was. And Peter would later write about that moment, that transfiguration in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16-18. through 18. And what he says in that moment is that he saw Jesus... In his majesty. The whole point of the book of John is that Jesus never claimed to be good. He always claimed to be God. And that's what makes Jesus and the feet so significant and so shocking with so many implications for you and for me. Because if Jesus was just a good man, then when he washed people's feet, he did a good thing. But if Jesus was God, when he made himself low and took dirty feet in his hands and insisted that people receive his goodness, it changes everything. Peter said he saw the visible splendor of the goodness of God. Imagine seeing that. That person is now kneeling at your feet. It's a weird picture. Verse 9. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, 
but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said, not all of you are clean. It's a tense room. See, Judas already had a deal with the devil. There's a lot of people in this room today, and you know what it feels like to have someone betray you. You know what it feels like to have someone let you down. You know what it feels like to have someone turn their back on you. If you've ever felt that way, Jesus knows exactly how you feel. See, I think in this moment, Jesus is teaching us some incredible things that we'll learn together. Let me pray for us, and then we'll walk through a few of them. Jesus, thank you for this teaching. Thank you that you have this heart towards us. Thank you for the people that are gathered and that are hearing this message right now. I pray that your word would speak to our hearts. I pray that you would instruct us on how to live for you, how to listen to you, and how to receive this goodness. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. The first thing I really want to show you today, I believe the passage is teaching you this, is to condition your heart to receive the goodness of God. That's really the essence of this gospel message. True happiness, true joy, true fulfillment in life is not based on what you can achieve for God, but what are you willing to receive from God? And it's not always easy. And so in order to truly have faith, in order to truly walk this walk with Jesus, we've got to learn to condition our hearts to receive the goodness of God. There's so many times throughout Scripture where Jesus calls out to a crowd and says, Are you thirsty? Then come and drink. Are you lost? Come and be found. Are you weary? Share your burden. Are you dead? Come alive. It's really the heart of the gospel. But you know we make it so complicated. Adults do this all the time. Christmas is coming up in a few months. Have you ever seen this happen? Someone like pours their heart into a special gift for you and uh, they wrap it up in a nice package and maybe they picked it out because they know your taste and they know your interest and they hand you this gift. Um, the worst feeling in the world is to be standing there empty-handed with nothing to give them. And that's why we now keep a closet full of used candles that we could just throw in a bag. Be like, oh, thank you. This is what I was always going to give you. Uh, just scratch off the previous name. Um, why? It's because we are conditioned that we can't just receive a gift empty-handed. That in order to receive something good, we have to give something good in return. And if we do that, we're not believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are still holding on to our spiritual capitalism. The only problem with spiritual capitalism is we will always come up broke. We could never afford what we need. We need Jesus. And that's why he came for us. Drink from the well. Here's the beautiful thing about grace, is the minute you think you deserve it, the minute you think you've served enough, or volunteered enough, or prayed enough, or smiled enough, or shared enough, or given enough, the minute you think you're enough, it stops being grace. Grace is always undeserved. So how do you receive it? You realize you need it. And you come to that humble place of receiving it. Just in this moment, in order to have their feet cleaned, people had to sit still. They had to allow themselves to be in Jesus' presence. 
They had to go through the process of Jesus doing his work. And they had to let their heart change and shift as this whole thing happened. I wonder if in this moment, Jesus was preparing their hearts to receive what they really needed, which was the blood of Christ that he himself would shed in just a few hours' time. But in order to receive grace in our lives, in your life, in my life, it requires a certain amount of upper room tension. We're forced to reconcile that nothing qualifies us for grace except the nearness of Jesus. Nothing qualifies you for grace except the nearness of Jesus. And nothing removes you from grace except rejecting Jesus. Just like Judas did. You know, we paint him as the bad guy, and spoiler alert, he is. <laughs> but I kind of like to think through his thought process. See, I wonder if Judas wanted what he could earn on his own. You know, he got something in return for rejecting Jesus. Got 30 pieces of silver. Judas wanted what he could earn on his own, but Peter received what he could never deserve. In this moment, in this context, I think that Judas is representing this independent nature that so many of us have. Like, we want God to help us be okay on our own. We want God to bless our plan. We want God to perform the miracle. And God is saying, here I am. I'm present. The eternal God, the author of life, I am here. And that is the miracle. Judas has this independent nature. I'm tired of needing Jesus all of the time. I want to see what I can get. I want to see what I can earn. I want to see what I deserve. And Judas is a great reminder to us that there is no really in-between. Because if we get what we deserve, if we want what we deserve, we will get it. And the wages of our sin is death. The answer is to condition your heart to receive this grace. Not just forgiveness of sins, but the nearness of God. The fullness of his presence. The glory of his nature. To allow him to satisfy you. To love you. To remind you that you're wanted. To remind you that because of his work, you're worthy. To remind you that you have a purpose in his plan. That you have beauty in his sight. The psalmist David was reconciling with this in Psalm 8, verse 4. He says, what is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? It's coming to the place of realizing that Jesus is the blessing. In our first year in Portland, we're about to hit year two. This is like our two-year anniversary. It's been great. But the first year we spent here was a really difficult year. And a lot of people have recently moved to town. And uh, you're kind of going through that process of adjusting to a new city and a new place. Yeah, we get it. We know what you feel. It was a really challenging year. And a lot of the things that I used to use for my own sense of sufficiency were sort of taken away. Things that I didn't realize I was relying on were gone. And something else had to feel, fill that gap. It was not the worst year, but it was challenging and in those times of needing Jesus, here's the beauty. I began to find Jesus at a deeper level. It was really incredible. And now no one has to convince me that he's real because I know him. Not just the idea of Jesus, but the person of Jesus. 
Where are you at with Jesus today? When is the last time you received some goodness from him? When's the last time you opened your heart, vulnerable, and just said, God, speak to me. God, fill me. God, bless me. Here I am. I'm ready to receive. Please meet me. I was looking back over my journal for the past year, and um, I think so often we've created like that daily devotion time as another work, as another checklist, as another way to qualify ourselves from grace, and we're looking at it all wrong. Spending time with Jesus every day is not about achieving. It is all about receiving. It's about bringing my needy soul to the source of life himself and seeing what he will pour into me. There's so many days I've sat down to go spend some time with Jesus, and I was just honest with myself. I'm not feeling it today. I am not feeling very holy in this moment. And Jesus is like, that's okay, because I'm the living God. I'm holy enough for us both. In fact, your holiness doesn't really measure up anyway. It just gets in the way. And some of the titles, because I'll do like a little journal post every day, and I always title it, and here's some of them. Jesus, thanks for never holding my shame against me. Jesus, there's never been one like you. Jesus, help me out today. Jesus, you're the sweetest thing. Jesus, I'm a fraud without you. Jesus, my biggest struggle is with myself. Jesus, you are breathtakingly good. These are confessions of a needy pastor and evidence of a gracious God. So condition your heart to receive his goodness. And once you have, you can learn the second principle. Learn the glory in giving. Learn the glory in giving. Have you ever noticed that needy people are greedy people? Needy people are greedy people. And greed is rottenness to the soul. It's a cancer that will eat away your joy and your satisfaction. It is impossible to be both happy and greedy. But needy people are greedy people. And so one of the most selfless things that you can do is to drink deeply from the goodness of God. If you are needy, that means you haven't found a well of abundance. It's not about what you can achieve. It's about what you are willing to receive. Let's take a look at this in the text. Verse 12 in John chapter 13. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. It's impossible to be both happy and greedy. But there is a glory in learning how to give your life away. It's a secret. It's a secret to deeper joy. It's a secret to deeper life. My daughter, Valentine, has this little doll that she loves, and um, it bears the marks of all of her love. It's just this gross, ratty doll. It used to be um, Sleeping Beauty. Now it's just like Sleeping Ugly. She's just not as cute as she used to be. Um, but last night, I handed her this doll, and my daughter just like, something came over her. Something relaxed 
in her little heart as she just hugged this doll. And she sighed deeply and went, huh. And she goes, I just love her. She always makes me feel so much better when I am sad or am in trouble. Like, then that is a lot, my dear. That is a lot of times. Isn't it so interesting? That doll gives nothing to my daughter. Never pats her on the head. That doll never smiles at my daughter. Never tells her it's going to be okay. Never takes her to see My Little Pony, like I did last night at Cenotopia. Never makes her breakfast. Never shares a sip of coffee. Never ties her shoes. Never does anything except let my daughter love her. Isn't it interesting that our hearts feel the most full when they are the most open? This is the basic process of our faith. To allow Jesus to give all of his goodness in all of its fullness. In the deepest parts of your heart, in the places of need, you are scared to admit that you have. By opening up yourself to Jesus with your hurts, with your insecurities, with your pain, and allowing him to pour goodness there. How vulnerable is that to begin with? But once your heart is open to him, your heart can open to others. And you will experience the abundant life. You see, Jesus is not just saying you should do this because you should. He's inviting you to live this way because he knows that it's good. He authored the world. He knows its rhythms. He knows its patterns. And by the way, it's how he himself chose to live. God, in his sovereignty, invites you to share love with others. Because religion is all about what you can achieve, but the gospel is about what you will receive. I'm going to invite our musicians forward. In just a moment, we're going to have a closing song that's just beautiful. I'm going to tell you a couple stories. I want you to receive the words of God today. I want to talk about dads for just a minute. Dads sometimes have a very complicated place in our heart. Barbara Walters was a famous interviewer, and she had a reputation for making people cry. And people said, Barbara, what is your secret? And she said, if you ask people about their moms, they smile. If you ask people about their dads, they cry. Why? I don't know. I'm not a psychologist to unpack that. I just know that dads and their approval usually has a special place in our lives. My dad was the consummate coach. He coached us in sports, in life, in humanity, just all the time. Coaching. And I'm just going to be honest. I wanted my dad's approval so bad, but as a rebel, sometimes I kept my distance just in case he didn't give it. And I can remember as I was growing in life and growing in faith, that there was a particular summer camp that uh, he wanted to go along with. And it was a Christian camp. And I just begged him not to go. I was like, Dad, I'm so embarrassed just to be seen around you. Please don't come. Please don't come. I'm so afraid you'll coach me or say something weird. Just don't do it. But he came anyway. I was so ticked off. I was so rude to him. I so rejected his presence. But then one night, during a moment a lot like this, a really cool just invitation where a great song was about to happen, I was just at the front of the room praying. And God was moving. And I can just remember, I'll never forget. My dad came up behind me. Normally, he came up with a tip or a way to do things better. It was always out of a good place. 
like uh, on the soccer field, he had the loudest voice, Aaron, two steps to the left, two steps to the right. I'm like, dad, I want to stand where I'm standing. But during this particular invitation, he just came up behind me and he was praying over me and he got down close and I could hear him in my ear. It was just weird. He'd never done anything like that before. I just remember him speaking into my ear. He said, son, I love you. And he just went on to say, I want you to know that I believe in you. And he just went on to affirm that there was nothing I could ever do to stop being his son. I was like, this is so uncomfortable, but so good. And I'm so glad that I couldn't push a moment like that away. I'm so glad that my dad pursued me, just like God is pursuing you right now in this moment. I was changed by that moment. citizen of the kingdom of God, but to be his child. But here's the thing. You can only receive what you are willing to believe. The real battle is believing. So let's just have just a moment if you would know. Thanks for listening to the weekly podcast of Spring of Life Church, where our mission is to invite thirsty people to become disciples of Jesus. For more information or to plan a visit to our church in Portland, visit us at springoflifepdx.com.